Welcome to the Jay Martin Show. This is Jay Martin, and today we are talking about the carbon credit market again. I had Justin Cochran on a couple of weeks ago to discuss this emerging industry called the carbon credit market. Now, this this is a very controversial sector. I've published uh, two interviews on my YouTube channel covering this market, and both interviews received a crazy amount of hate. And I get it because we're talking about a new industry capital markets centric that is focused on reducing carbon emissions and therefore combating climate change. Now, why is this controversial? Well, it's controversial because as of today, half the internet still doesn't believe in climate change and the half that does probably believes that trying to profit from it is some kind of moral sin. But look, I'm not here to dispute climate science. I'm an investor and I'm following the money. And trust me, I'm trying really hard to prove this sector wrong. I'm putting on my cynic hat. I'm trying to find something wrong with it. But this isn't my first rodeo when it comes to emerging industries. And every indicator I'm seeing keeps leading me to become bullish. I'm just following the money. And I've seen this show before. So I am actively vetting carbon credit investment opportunities. I'm, I'm digging into the details of the deals these companies are doing when they're, they're purchasing you know, plots of rainforest in Borneo or Brazil that have been slated for clear cutting to build a palm oil plantation. And by protecting these lands, they are rewarded with carbon credits that they can then sell to major emitting companies and therefore reduce the net output of carbon emissions. The math makes sense. The money makes sense. And the entrepreneurs, the few that I've talked to, and I just try to talk to the best of the best, their heart's in the right place, you know? And so there's a lot of reasons to believe that the only way we are actually going to reach our climate goals of 2050 by becoming, you know, in order to become a carbon neutral planet are through, in my opinion, free market entrepreneurship, providing solutions with the right incentive mechanisms in place. I just think that's what drives human behavior and progress is incentives and, and entrepreneurship. And so, you know, I think allowing free market entrepreneurs to enter the climate industry is probably the best shot we have at reducing our carbon footprint. But people don't, they don't like hearing that. They don't like hearing that, that you can make money off cleaning up the earth. And I get it, I get it. And trust me, I'm doing my best to prove this sector wrong, but I keep seeing indicators that make me bullish. And yes, I am now allocating capital. I've invested in three carbon credit companies, including the one you're about to hear from. Now, this is not a shameless plug. The individual I'm about to interview, his name is Jamie Keach. And I've known Jamie for six, seven years, but as a mining investor, he's somebody I go to if I want to invest in the commodity sector, gold, silver, copper, nickel, et cetera. And so I intended on having him on the show today to discuss my junior mining portfolio. I'm right now holding a ton of stocks in the commodity sector, I think actually too many, and I want to consolidate this part of my portfolio. And so I wanted to run through Jamie Keach's uh, commodity outlook. But in inevitably, you know, he's as excited or at least curious. No, he's more excited than I am about the carbon credit sector. And so this is where we ended up spending all of our time today. He's now the chairman of a new carbon streaming company. We'll get into what that means. And one that I, I invested in, I wrote a big check into this company because I trust Jamie. And like I said, I keep diving into the numbers of this industry and think, you know, I've seen this rodeo before, an emerging sector, and I know what happens next. You know, my job as an investor is to spot the avalanche of money and put myself in front of it. And this formula, when I get it right, has changed my life a couple of times. And I think it might here again. So yes, I'm bullish. Yes, I have bias. Yes, I, should, I don't have bias. I don't have bias, but I do have skin in the game. Maybe that's the opposite of bias, right? I'm, 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 I'm eating my own cooking, right? So anyways, let's dive into this. I hope you enjoy this. Jamie's a smart guy and it's a sector that I'm spending a lot of time investigating right now because I think it is quite compelling. So here is Jamie Keach and we are talking about the emerging 
carbon credit industry. Enjoy. What's up, guys? Jay Martin here, investor and CEO of Cambridge House, and I'm joined right now by Jamie Keach. Jamie is the chairman of Vita Carbon. He is a partner at Inventa Capital Corp and the founder and CIO at Resource Insider. Jamie, how are you? Good, man. How are you? I'm really good. I'm really good. Yeah, thanks for making the time. I'm excited to chat with you today and go- My pleasure. Yeah. Web of directions. For anybody who's not familiar, you've been on the show before, but for anybody who's not familiar with who you are and what you do, let's start with that. You know, who are you, Jamie, and how do you spend your time? Yeah, uh, well, I guess going back to basics, you know, I started my career as a mining engineer. Uh, I worked all over the world before moving to Vancouver about seven years ago. Since moving to Vancouver, I've worked primarily in, I would say, the venture capital space of the mining world. Uh, you know, that started with being the fourth employee at Equinox Gold, now a multi-billion dollar gold company. You know, we did, I think it was seven mergers and acquisitions, going from $20 million to well over a billion dollars in my tenure there. And then more recently, uh, I've run for the last four years, the Resource Insider Newsletter. We are a subscription-funded newsletter. We don't take money from companies. All we do all day is we go out and we look for the best private placement investments that we can find in the natural resource and the commodity sector. I invest my own money in everything we cover, uh, and our subscribers often invest alongside me. And so that's been a successful business and, and a really passion project of myself to run. And I've got to work with some of the coolest, most interesting investors and, and entrepreneurs I've ever, uh, I could have ever imagined. So that's been very rewarding. And then the last about year and a half, I've joined as a partner of venture capital firm called Inventor Capital, based here in Vancouver. Uh, the chairman is a gentleman named Craig Pari, uh, sort of a serial entrepreneur within the mining space. And at Inventa, we're doing exactly what we were talking about before, is finding great projects, finding great teams, and helping incubate new companies. And uh, I guess you just mentioned my newest role, which is chairman of Vita Carbon. Man, these are starting to add up now. My my uh, my intro is getting longer than it was about a year ago. That's why I but let you do Vita, it. <laughs> Vita is the newest deal that's come out of uh, Inventor Capital. And exactly what it sounds like, this is a foyer into the carbon credit and the carbon offset sector. Uh, it is a company focused on streaming and royalties in that space. And we've had a shockingly incredible amount of traction and support in that sector already. We're only... Uh, you know, about a year old, and it's gone really, really well. And there's a lot of exciting things happening. Okay, I want to talk about a lot of that. So we're going to talk about Vita because I want to know more about the carbon sector. You know, I know you're excited about the carbon sector, obviously, right? You're the chairman of Vita. Yes. You're not the first person who's been on this show who's been incredibly excited about an industry that I think very few people don't understand yet. And most people that talk about it are incredibly skeptical. I mean, I've published two interviews covering that industry so far on this channel, both came out to a very weak response. And those mm. that watched it were incredibly skeptical of it, right? And so, but I'm seeing all the indicators. I'm seeing a lot of smart money moving that direction. I'm seeing a lot of smart entrepreneurs launching businesses. And I've seen this rodeo before, right? Where, where you see the, the, the early stages of a budding industry, retail doesn't quite get it yet or questions if it has substance Right. And then when that tide turns, that's when you want to be positioned. So I do want to talk about the carbon market. Can I turn the interview around on you and ask you, what are people most skeptical of? Because we're seeing a ton of support, for example. So we did a private financing a few months ago. We were oversubscribed by a factor of three. Uh, you know, and we, I've been, I thought 
that this was going to get a lot of support. I knew that there was a lot of interest out there, but it has even blown away what I was expecting. So I'm curious to hear the other side of it. Yeah, I mean, and that makes sense to me. I invested in Vita, right? And uh, mm-hmm. I'm excited about it. And I think that it makes sense that your audience would appreciate it because they buy into what you're doing. You know, they know you, they trust you, you've delivered returns for them. So if you bring them carbon, if you explain what this market is, they're going to yeah. be, you know, they're going to listen, right? Whereas, But I'll take it one step further even because sure. before we brought uh, Vita Carbon or Carbon Deal to our uh, newsletter and covered it in there, I was getting our members reaching out to me and asking, hey, what about this carbon thing, Jamie? Like, can you take a look at that? Meanwhile, we're like working behind the scenes, trying to get things done, trying to get things. But I had, you know, probably a dozen people reach out to me and say, you know, you should be taking a look at this. We'd love to invest in that. So there is that that groundswell among a certain maybe subset of investors. But again, I didn't mean to cut you off. Sorry. No, no, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I would put myself in that bucket. You know, I was mm-hmm. really excited when I got the call that you were putting a deal together and did not hesitate. However, I guess... So you asked me, you know, what's behind the lukewarm response? Yeah, what's the criticism? (laughs) Well, I can speculate. I mean, you know, what's the purpose of the carbon credit industry, right? It's to help mitigate climate change, right? At at a high level. There's more to it than that, right? There's now incentive structures and mechanisms in place to to convince, um, you know, the world's biggest emitters to start investing in carbon reducing projects. But, you know, at its yeah. core, right, what it endeavors to do is help clean up the planet, right? We're trying to be carbon neutral by 2050. Mm-hmm. Well, you put a piece of content out on the internet about that. First of all, half the internet doesn't believe in climate change. And the half that yeah. does, right, probably looks at capitalists trying to fill their pockets off of climate change as some kind of a mortal sin, right? So, so that's, who you're, that's yeah. who you're talking to when you publish a video and put it in the abyss on the internet, right? You get everybody. Yeah. And uh, and that's the response that I've seen so far. Yeah, How, what do you think about that? You know, I think it's an interesting point, right? And I think, you know, the people that watch your show are primarily investors, I assume. Yeah. And I think what you, they need to be thinking about is is not whether they believe in climate change or not, or what, not whether they agree with what's happening, but they need to probably be thinking about what is actually happening and how do you respond to this changing environment? Something we do know is that something about $39 trillion has been committed to being pulled out of the oil and gas space. So if there's ever been an indicator that sort of the most wealthy, most powerful, most well-financed corporates and capital allocators and funds and private equity firms, et cetera, of the world are shifting focus, I think that is it. And that money, you know, that money doesn't just go and sit in a savings account somewhere, right? Collecting 0.1% interest. It's swirling around up there and it's looking for somewhere to go right now. And so much of it, I think, is being redirected into green energy, into ESG, into, for lack of a better term, the, the net zero trade. And if I'm an investor at home, you know, you can have your political opinions, you can have your scientific opinions, but if you're an investor, it should be your investment opinion should be where is capital going? How is this going to impact markets? How do I take advantage of that? And I think anyone even remotely paying attention to what's going on right now has to see the net zero trade as something that's happening and is going to be getting bigger and bigger and impacting our lives, our portfolios, everything for you know at least the next five years, very likely the next couple of decades. Well, it, it would have to be, you know, if we're, 
gonna gonna follow this thread towards uh, you know the Paris Agreement's goals of reducing emissions by fifty percent by twenty thirty and becoming a carbon neutral planet by twenty fifty. If I, what I've learned is correct, that's about a hundred and fifty trillion dollar problem, right? To convert the world to carbon neutrality. Now, you know, I, I, that's that's a speculative number, but it's you know probably pretty close. Now, you said what did you say? Thirty nine trillion pulled out of oil and gas. Now that that is what excites me, right? And that's what should excite investors. Exactly what you just said. And and yeah. like, look, I'm no scientist or weather expert. I've spent enough time in beautiful wild places. That I appreciate what we stand to lose that we don't take care of this planet, but I don't need to yeah. understand the complexity of climate change to understand incentives. And when you say 39 trillion pulled out of oil and gas, it's from companies like BlackRock, the world's largest fund, right? Larry Fink, he's no snowflake, right? He manages over $10 trillion. Yeah. He's now said in numerous letters to his shareholders that they will be pushing his portfolio companies towards holdings that embrace zero emissions by 2050 and maybe yeah. dropping some that, that, that fail to engage. Have you, I think he also said, it's, you know, the next thousand unicorns are coming sort of green energy companies. I think that's a quote from him as well. Interesting. So that's to him. You know, these are unicorns are billion dollars plus sort of startup companies, for example. And, you know, I, honestly, this shouldn't be that much of a surprise to people. You know, the idea of carbon offsets or carbon credits, uh, you know, there's lots of people that find that offensive as a sort of a tax. But are you familiar with a concept called the tragedy of the commons? Explain it to me. So if you took like, you know, biology in high school, you might have come across this, but the tragedy of the commons is a concept that was developed by a, a British economist a few hundred years ago. And it was what was happening in Britain at the time is that the common areas, the area owned by the common people as opposed to the aristocracy, you know, it was commonly owned and nobody controlled it. And what was happening is people were allowing their livestock to just run around, sheep, uh, cattle, et cetera. And they ate all the grass and basically turned the damn thing into a mud pit. And so the common area got destroyed and there was a tragedy. So the idea of the tragedy of the commons is that if Nobody owns something or has to pay to use it. There is no accountability there, right? And therefore, if there's no price to use it, everyone uses it to the maximal extent and it destroys the resource. And so this was changed. You had to pay grazing fees. You either own the land, et cetera, et cetera, which put the accurate cost on the use of the land, which therefore protected the land. So that's that's the classic example. But you also see this again, you know, in the... 60s, 70s, 80s, when you were hearing about, you know, water pollution, where I'm from Ontario, uh, you know, I think there was one section of lake at one point outside of Hamilton, Ontario, big steel town, which literally caught on fire because of all the pollution that was in the bay right there, right? And because at the time, companies in factories and plants, et cetera, were able to just dump, uh, you know, chemicals, waste, et cetera, into waterways because it was, you know, uh, the recipe to pollution is dilution, and it's just going in there, and it's going to wash away. Sure. That is another example of the tragedy of the commons, that people didn't realize that these lakes and rivers, and even to a lesser degree, but real degree, oceans, are a finite resource, and that you can't just pile an unlimited amount of shit in there and have no consequences. So what happened? Well, regulations came in place where you have to treat your sewage, you have to pay for this, that, and the other which was designed to reduce the impact and the amount of, of waste that was going into waterways, right? 
So you have the grazing ground, which is a very local issue. It's the field in the local square or whatever. You have the, you know, whether it's a lake or a river, it's a, you know, a local or a regional or maybe even a national issue if it's the Great Lakes here in Canada. These were all addressed by regulations and fees and taxes, et cetera, et cetera, to properly build in the pricing of pollution. So what's happening now is we're kind of just taking that to the next level, right? We're looking at what is the proper price of pollution for the atmosphere? You know, unlike a lake, which is a regional issue, you know, the atmosphere isn't a regional issue. It's a global issue. And it's fine that the EU is putting in uh, a compliance system or California or Quebec, and they have carbon credits there that you have to buy. But the problem is this is a global issue and it has to be addressed by everyone. And what I really like that's happening right now in the carbon space is this rise of the voluntary carbon markets. This is being driven by capitalism. This is being driven by markets. And it's an attempt to put you know, proper pricing on what it costs to pollute the atmosphere. And I think you know, that's just an important stage. And what we're seeing, what we've seen throughout history is the evolution of properly impacting or proper pricing or impacting an environment, whether that's ground, water, and now air. And we're, you know, we've just gotten to the point where, okay, you know, 30 years ago, we were seeing the impact on waterways through, you know, pouring chemicals in there. Now we're seeing the impact on the atmosphere by pouring chemicals in there. It is a finite, you know, steady state solution and it will change. And it has changed throughout time, but you know, it's changing now and we need to price what that's going to look like. And that's that's kind of my view on it, that it's not anti-capitalistic. It's kind of part of the process. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I wouldn't call it anti. I mean, I think it's a great example if it works. Right. And I think we should get into the details a little bit because we jumped into yeah. carbon faster than I thought we would. And so for anyone who's not familiar, I want to explain the basics uh, right away. But if this industry delivers what's promised, it's a great vote of confidence in capitalism as you know, as, mm-hmm. as a fantastic solution to a problem that we've been unable to solve or really make any notable ground on. So anyways, when you say, you know, we're now a bit able to apply the proper pricing structure, right, to these finite natural resources, well, talk to me, what, how does the carbon sector work? What is a carbon credit? How is it created? Who needs it? Why do they need it? Yeah, so there's, there are really two carbon sectors. There is the compliance sector, and then there is the voluntary sector. So the compliance sector is what you think of when you think of of cap and trade programs, right? This is in the EU has a compliance market, California has a compliance market, Quebec has a compliance market, and you know, very generally speaking, it's something like the government says a, a given company can produce X number of tons uh, of carbon per year or greenhouse gases per year. If they go over that allowance, they have to purchase credits that are in that market to offset, you know, the, the pollution that they're, they're generating. So that's the compliance market. Those are their own unique ecosystem. What's really been taking flight uh, over the last couple of years is the voluntary market. And this is exactly what it sounds like. It's voluntary. You do not need to participate, but so many big companies, wealthy individuals, uh, pension plans, university endowments, et cetera, are starting to commit to participate in this due to the pressure of their sort of shareholder base or investor base, et cetera. And when you see 
you know, the Microsofts or the Exxons or the Tiffany's or whatever say, we're going to be carbon neutral by 2030 or 2040 or 2050, whatever sort of guidelines that they're setting. Often it's going to be a big part of that is going to be participating in these voluntary carbon markets. And, you know, for people who don't know what I'm talking about at all, it's, it's very simple. So a carbon offset credit represents one ton of emitted carbon. So if you produce 10 tons of carbon a year from burning, burning whatever and producing greenhouse gases, you would need to buy 10 carbon credits. And it really kind of acts to, to balance the seesaw there. And then to become you are, carbon neutral, you are net zero, right? You're not gross zero. Gross zero means you emit nothing. The net zero means you kind of consume as much as you admit and you you balance it out. So, so many things cannot become gross zero, right? Like we can all switch to electric cars. We can build, you know, uh, wind turbines and solar fields, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and reduce our emissions. But there's like, for example, there's the cement industry. The cement industry is responsible for 8% of all global carbon emissions, right? Of that 8%, half of it, so 4% globally, is just from the chemical processes that, that are required to make cement. So there's a lot of different industries like that. So it's, it's a very, very complicated sector. And it's unlikely, well, I think it's unlikely we'll ever hit gross zero ever, frankly. And it's, it's certainly unlikely we're going to be doing it anytime soon in the next 10, 20, 30 years. Yeah. So right. these carbon offset credits are really designed to help companies, to help society achieve these goals. Right. So right now, the world is emitting something like 50 billion tons of carbon yeah. annually. Right. And yeah. so that's actually that's the exact number. That's the exact number. So gross zero would be that the planet is emitting zero, zero, zero tons. Right. Net zero, as you're saying, is say by 2050, maybe we get that down to 15 billion tons. We really work hard. Exactly. right? Because I actually was, you know, sitting at a, a at a table in a restaurant when I first heard that number before we launched this company. And this is the kind of mental math that I did that really got me excited. So exactly that. There's 50 billion tons. Okay. Every single year, 50 billion tons of CO2 are pumped out into the atmosphere. Let's say we all get our act together. You know, we all become vegans and have solar panels on our house and et cetera, et cetera. Well, you're not going to eliminate all 50 billion tons. But say you can eliminate, you, you know, 80% of it. You know, you've got 20% left. That represents 10 billion tons per year. Okay. Right now, the average car, so you have 10 billion tons that would need to be set off by 10 billion carbon offset credits. The average carbon offset credit now is going for, you know, very generally speaking, around $10, okay? So that represents 10 times 10, $100 billion industry today, okay? If, assuming that. But most people are predicting conservatively that these things are going to be worth $40 over the next nine to 10 years. Right now, just, just hold on a minute. Right now, one credit is worth $10. Is that what you said? So I said, very generally speaking, on average, they're worth $10, but, you know, they can range from 15, they can range down to, you know, a few dollars, depending on where that credit comes from, what jurisdiction is located and how old it is. It's, it's quite a complex pricing system. But, sure, sure. But the but reason yeah, like 10 is average. 10, 10 ish. We'll say 10 ish. Yeah. Not, not holding you that number. I get mm -hmm. it. You're saying you could speculate that number will go up to $40. Give any, again, like guess estimate time horizon before 
that carbon credit quadruples in price? So the predictions that I've seen say, and these are sort of detailed market analysis, they're not just, you know, some guy kind of licking his finger there, yeah, is yeah. that it's forty, it's forty dollars by twenty thirty. By twenty thirty. By twenty thirty, that carbon credit will quadruple in price because the demand for that carbon credit yeah. from you know airline companies, shipping and logistic companies, energy companies, companies like Coca-Cola, which are never gonna be carbon gross uh, neutral, right? They're mm-hmm. going to have to buy those credits if they want to get funds from companies like BlackRock, right, to get cheaper capital, mm-hmm. get access to capital. They're going to have to hunt down, you know, net zero. And so mm-hmm. they're, they're all going to be, hunt- so as demand increases, that's what's going to raise the price, right? So the so real simple yeah. supply and demand economics, where does the credit come from, Jamie? So credits can be created a variety of ways. So like, roughly speaking, there's two different types of credits or two activities that can create credits. There is sequestration, right? So you're actually pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. The most you know, common way of this is you're planting trees, right? You plant trees, trees consume CO2, therefore they're sequestering carbon. That's one. And then there's reduction. It's that you're taking some sort of step that stops carbon from producing. And then the most common way of that is changing from, say, fossil fuels to renewable energy. And often especially depending on the parts of the world, you'll generate carbon credits from that as well. So that's the two main ways that carbon credits are created. But, you know, the creation of of what I would say call quality carbon credits is actually, you know, quite a complicated process. It's not really just a matter of me buying a forest and saying, I'm not going to cut down any trees, therefore I have carbon credits. It's, there are actual governing certifying bodies that will um, evaluate a project, approve the plan. They will sort of use something called a methodology, which is basically parameters by which these projects are evaluated. And they say, okay, say this is a forestry project. The methodology is the red plus methodology. And you're you're planting trees in Brazil. They can say, okay, well, you're in this latitude in this part of the world. Uh, These are the kind of trees that grow there. They grow at this rate. You get this much rainfall, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Given all this, we certify that this project will generate a million credits a year for 20 years. And once that's certified, then that project will generate those credits. But even then, only if you do consistent monitoring, if you do consistent reporting and make sure that they're actually achieving their goals of planting certain trees and not cutting down other trees. So there is a a really science-based rubric in place here to ensure that these things are generated. Because the whole concept of carbon offsets is the idea of additionality. And additionality essentially means, you know, you should not be granted a carbon credit if what you were going to do, what you're doing, was going to happen anyways, right? So, for example, you can't generate carbon credits from national parks by protecting national parks because national parks are already protected. You're not going to be allowed, you're not allowed to cut down trees there. So what you what you would do then is you could identify a parcel of rainforest that is earmarked mm-hmm. to be clear cut for the purpose of agriculture or development of some kind. Yes. And the community is going to take that because they need the economic stimulus, right? They need the jobs, they need the money, and they have no other option, right? So what you're mm-hmm. saying is that now there's another option, right? A carbon... Uh, what do you call that? Who, who, is there just a forest conservation company could come in and say, look, we'll buy the yeah. rainforest from you 
And the reason we can afford to buy the rainforest is because we're going to generate carbon credits because we're preventing that clear cutting, right? So this is, Make this sell is the exactly, exactly what one of our portfolio companies uh, that we have a streaming agreement with called EBCF is doing in Amazonia State of Brazil. This is a company. They went in and they saw this opportunity. There was a package of land that was destined to be clear cut. They went and purchased that. They protected it. They conserved those trees. There is a given methodology by which this sort of conservation projects can be evaluated. They brought in the, the, the verifiers from a, from a group called Vera, and they certified this. And now that is actively generating credits every year. So that's exactly what's happening. Okay, so I'm, I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of the critics who are then going to say, okay, great, right? Rainforest protected, that company's getting carbon credits and they're making money off that, but the local population doesn't have the jobs they would have had, right? So is it not a disservice to those locals who sure, right? Like you took yep. it away. Well, that's, I mean, a, that's a good question. Uh, and in most of the sort of deals that I've seen, if there, if there are local populations and communities, depending on how remote it is, the com- a lot of the companies are trying to integrate them into this. So they will, the communities will often get a percentage of the revenue generated by credits, or they'll reinvest the portion of that revenue to try to sort of reinvigorate traditional in- industries, such as the harvest of acai berries or um, Brazil nuts. So normally uh, they have this, these sort of additional factors that they do that they put in there, where a lot of this money goes to invest into improving the life of those communities and the, the economic sort of fortunes. So let's use your Brazil example for a little bit. If we can, can we dive into this deal a little bit? I'm curious. Can we, yeah. Can we do that? Mm-hmm. Okay. So talk to me about the stakeholders. Who owned the land and who purchased the land? Who owned the land? It was um, permitted to a forestry company. Okay. EBCF, the private company, purchased the land. And actually, very coincidentally, have this exact slide open in my presentation in front of me on them. And so they have their sort of some of the additional aspects that they're adding here is they're protecting 342 animal species protected. They're protecting 146 species of flora. And there's 400 families in 15 different communities in this region uh, that are also going to benefit from this as well. What's up, everybody? Sorry for the interruption. Quick note, if you enjoy these conversations, I publish a weekly newsletter and it's free where I share my top takeaways, lessons learned, and any action steps I might be taking as a consequence in the market. Sign up at cambridgehouse.com. I publish every week and it's free. Now back to the conversation. I support this. I mean, I, 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 like I said, I've been a huge benefactor of my time spent yeah. in wrong places, tons of time spent in very small towns with healthy wildlife populations. And I appreciate what we stand to lose. You know, I, I as the investor in me wants to put myself in the shoes of the critics though. And so when I say it's great, you're protecting the rainforest and I understand mm-hmm. the, uh, the carbon implications of that. But what about the locals that don't get those 20 years, uh, the 20 years of employment that would have come on the back of whatever project would have occurred. I guess, you know, the purchasing company, EVC app, it's not a given to get to buy this land. They have to take a proposal to the owner, whether it's government, community owned, and it has mm-hmm. to be competitive with whatever else is on the table, right? Competitive yeah. enough that they'll take that deal over the, the palm oil plantation or whatever else could have gone in there. Well, 
I'll give you a very specific example, actually, of another deal we're looking at right now in Latin America. I'm not going to tell you exactly where it is, but this group is doing something very, very similar uh, in this Latin American country. And what they've done is they have a revenue sharing agreement with the local population, which is an indigenous population. And not only does this indigenous population get a very sizable uh, percentage of the revenue generated from the sale of these credits. A lot of the money is also invested back into the economy there to help promote kind of what you would call traditional forestry industry. So in this part of the world, they harvest Brazil nuts, for example. And this is something that they're helping to encourage as well. So I think you're right. And when negotiating these deals, you know, this is this is something you really need to be considerate of and aware of because at the end of the day, they have to be economic successes for all the stakeholders involved, right? If you're going in and protecting this forest and making millions of dollars or more per year off of the sale of the credits, you know, there's going to be unhappiness. There's going to be potential revolt from the local people there, right? Who kind of feel like their resource is being taken from them. So the smart partners, the smart operators in these part of the world are building community partnerships. And it's kind of important to note that like, Carbon offset credits are a bit of a hot space right now, but they've been around for a long time. They've been around for over a decade. So most of the companies, even the private companies that have gone into these areas in the past, they weren't you know, minting huge amounts of cash doing this. They were often doing this as a way to help local communities and to protect forests. You know, they had a very altruistic sense to begin with because you know, until recently, the wider investing public did not consider this an area that was potentially very lucrative. Can I can I draw some parallels? And I'll, I may I may butcher this, but you let me know if they ring with you. You know, mm-hmm. when I when I hear you talk about this, I'm I'm remember of the cannabis industry, and I you know I think about the the OGs in the cannabis industry. That yeah, were, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm talking about you know sure the the entrepreneurs, the activists. Who were doing it before it was cool, right? Doing it yeah. for more altruistic reasons, right? But it takes money to really move the needle on things, right? And eventually that occurred, yeah. right? Due to legalization and 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 licensing, right? And and that's when suddenly that industry changed overnight. And and that's kind of what I'm seeing here. Like, you know, how are you supposed to sustainably protect the environment without without financial incentives? Like, I wish we just could. Right, but what what's going to create that sustainability? I, I mean, I tend to agree with you. I think that's a really apt analogy, right? So there have been people that have been doing this for decades because it's been a passion project, but now the economics are kind of starting to align, and it's you know the biggest investors, uh, the most sophisticated banks and funds, etc. of the world are looking at deploying capital into this space, and it's going to change a lot, right? The whole the whole structure of this sector will change with that flood of capital, that access to money, uh, the level of sophistication of the players. It's all gonna, it's all gonna adjust, and it's a, it's an area that's very much in flux right now. Okay, so, so I'm convinced. Let's say we provided enough information for my audience to to get it a little bit. And and if you're listening, you know, I didn't anticipate the conversation going this way. To be honest with you, Jamie, but I'm happy it did because. It's an industry okay. that I'm like, I'm really thirsty to know more about, you know, I'm really yeah, curious yeah. about this and, and I, I love it. So, so yeah, full disclosure, you know, you're the chairman of, of Vita Carbon and, and I'm an investor. I, I wrote a, a big check 
let's let's separate ourselves from that a little bit. Talk to my audience who says, okay, I believe you that carbon is going to be a phenomenal investment opportunity in the years to come. And if so, they're going to see a crazy amount of deal flow and opportunities. And yeah. if so, probably most of them aren't going to be very legitimate or do what they say they're going to do. I mean, that's the nature of startup investing. Most yeah. things don't work out. So do you have some like simple ABC rules, some some words of advice that you could leave with, with my audience right now that say, okay, you're looking at a carbon deal. Here's what you should look for. Here's a red flag you should look for as well. Okay. I got three things. Yeah. All right. You want to be thinking about team, structure, and asset. Team, structure, asset. Okay. Let's start with team. This is the most obvious one. With any venture space in Canadian markets, what happens when there's a hot sector? A billion people rush into this. They start as many companies as they can, as fast as they can, and they try to lock down as much capital as they can, as quickly as they can. We saw this in cannabis. We saw this in crypto. We've seen it, I mean, in mining every 10 years, and we're going to see it in the carbon space as well. And whenever this happens, it's, you know, it's a wide base of people entering this. and as time goes on, there's going to be fewer and fewer, uh, and there's going to be big winners, and then there's going to be, you know, not such big winners, <laughs> and probably a lot of losers. So what we did, for I'll give you an example, when we started Vita, we entered this space and we said, you know, we're coming from a finance background, we're coming from mining background, we understand how to, uh, you know, build and run and finance public companies, we understand how to close deals, we understand how to work in uh, emerging markets, but we are not carbon experts. So our number one priority before we ever went looking for any deal, before we ever tried to close a transaction, was figuring out how do we build a team? How do we find that technical expertise that really gives us the edge, not to get one asset, but to build a pipeline of assets, to evaluate them, to implement them, to commercialize them, to all these things that have to be done. That was our number one priority. I'm a mining engineer. I'm a technical person. I have a lot of respect for technical skill sets. And I understand the, one, the ones that I have and the ones that I don't have. So we wanted to find the ones. We wanted to find people that could backstop that. So what we did, we went out and we partnered with a group called Clear Blue Markets. They're our biggest shareholder. They have decades and decades and decades of experience working in carbon markets, uh, finding projects, evaluating projects, implementing projects, selling offset credits, working with the biggest buyers in the world for credits. We went, we made them the biggest shareholder of our company. They've invested a lot of their own money and we've integrated their technical team into Vita. So that was our number one priority. Now, I'm not just using this as a chance to talk about Vita. The reason I highlight this is because anyone who's listening to this, anyone who's thinking of investing in this space, if you're in this for the long run, if you want to find the companies that I think will have the chance to have the biggest winners, find the people that have been doing this for a while. And that's going to be harder to do than you might think. And the problem is that until very recently, carbon has been a really tiny space. There's not been a ton of capital flood in there. And as the problem with that is there's very limited expertise. And right now there's a rush for talent. So the biggest banks and funds and trading houses like the Trafigurus or the Glencores of the world, they're all trying to build carbon desks to take advantage of this market. And there's just not that many people uh, that have expertise. So there's going to be a lot of companies that start. They're going to be repurposing investment bankers or biologists or whatever you have as carbon experts. 
But I would say if you're going to invest a serious amount of capital, do some actual digging into the team and make sure that they actually know what they're doing. As time goes on, more people will develop the expertise. But if you're kind of looking for that first mover advantage, I'd say team is number one. Okay. Number two, I said is structure. You need to think about how you want to invest in this space and what kind of company you want to invest in. So the way we are doing it at Vita is primarily by the royalty and streaming model. Anyone who's been investing in gold uh, or, or uh, mining knows the advantages of royalties and streaming. You kind of get the upside, whereas your downside is massively minimized. You don't have to pay for operating costs. Your capital costs are massively limited. You're not actually out there operating the projects. The reason that we did that was because we knew, you know, we didn't know how to run a forestry project in Indonesia or in the Congo or in Brazil. Our goal was to find the teams that had done that extremely well and finance them and take advantage of their expertise. This does kind of come back to teams, but it does. I am saying, think about if that if your team you're investing in has the expertise to deploy capital effectively in the structure they're using. If I was going out and saying, hey, Jay, you know, I'm going to go start planting trees in Brazil, you might want to think carefully about that because that is not my expertise. And we don't have the team for that expertise. We have a team that's good at finding partners and effectively deploying capital with those partners. So look very hard at the business model, the structure of the companies you're investing in. And finally, assets. They need to be good assets. They need to be generating carbon offset credits. Just because somebody has a forestry project, just because somebody has a high efficiency cook stove project, which is another asset class in the carbon sector, it doesn't mean that those things will necessarily ever produce offset credits. They need to be able to get that certified by the different verifying bodies. And this is not an easy process necessarily. It's a highly scientific process a huge portion of the projects that are put up or are requesting certification are turned away. They're saying, you know, you don't meet the requirements for X, Y, Z reason. The other thing is, even if a project is certified to deliver, say, a million credits a year for 20 years, it doesn't mean they actually will. You actually, the operator has to kind of squeeze those credits out of there by doing proper monitoring, doing proper reporting, making sure they're doing everything they say they're going to do. And if they're not able to do that, they won't be able to harvest the credits. So find high quality assets that are run by really experienced teams in a structure that they know how to execute on. That's, I mean, that's the very simplest way I would say to focus on the space. And that's what we tried to do. And I think you listed it in the appropriate order because depending on how much time you have to do diligence on your investments, mm -hmm. you if you're only if you only have time to do one, pick pick the people. In my opinion, right? Pick the people, and yeah, and, and that's something. The reason I say I know I'm biased because you know we we play the hand that we're dealt, right? I talk to people for a living, right? You know, I, that's what I have yeah. access to, right? I'm not a mining engineer, not a geologist, but I invest in the resource sector. Not a scientist, yeah. but I invest in the health science industry, right? I invest in food tech. I, I can't grow anything to save my life, but you know what I can do is diligence on the who. Right. I can look at who's mm. in the driver's seat and their track record. Have they delivered before? Right. Like what's, you know, and do they surround themselves with other great people? You can look at the executives and the directors and look at their resumes. That's public information yeah. for a public company. Anybody can pull that up 
and a you know a perpetual you know almost made it individuals leading the charge like i don't know if you want to bet on that you know that almost look okay so what let me let me think about this a little bit what's the what's the long term development of this sector as you're talking about this i'm thinking you know you you specifically mentioned the race to talent right now because you know there's tons of cash flowing in demand is probably going to skyrocket if these forecasts are correct yeah. so the demand for more credits will be bananas everyone's going to want to be able to generate them there's only so many people who can do it right now cuz it's an emerging industry you know at yeah. what point does does you know a coca-cola just say we're going to build this in house right and they're going to look maybe i mean optimally have somebody like you and say we'll just bring you in or like, mm-hmm. does it make sense for the world's biggest emitters, the cement companies, right? The the big logistics and utility companies to just build an in-house carbon credit division. Can you see that happening one day? That's already happening. That okay. is happening. Got so it. like, you know, the big traders like Glencore and Trafigura, the big uh, utilities of the world, the big oil and gas producers, they, don't, they are very aggressively right now building carbon teams. They're scouring the globe for people. Now it'll be up to them how they depend how they decide to execute on that, right? Are they going to buy carbon credits just on the market at sort of spot price that are available? Are they going to buy uh, long-term offtake agreements from producers? Are they going to buy it from a company like Vita, for example, or have agreements with us? They'll all have different strategies. Some of them will probably try to incubate their own projects, whether they're protecting forestry and whatnot. But that's all going to happen, and there's a lot of money kind of flooding into this space in capital markets, but even more outside of capital markets right now too. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's going to be a big space. Like if we go back to that number, right? Conservatively, 10 billion uh, tons of greenhouse gas emissions need to be offset every year. If it costs $40 a credit, think about that. That's a $400 billion industry per annum, per year. To put that into perspective, the rough estimate of gold is $150 billion per year, right? So this is like more than two times the size of gold, right? And when I look at the gold space right now, what do I see? I see the streaming and royalty companies in there. I see the Franco Nevadas and the Wheaton Preciouses that are $20, $30 billion companies, right? So I think this is certainly going to happen in the carbon space. There are going to be massive, massive carbon credit companies in the you know, $50 billion plus category. But it depends, you know, how things go the next couple of years, who that actually is. But, you know, taking it back to gold again, when I look at, you know, the most successful royalty and streaming companies in gold, the one thing they really have in common is that they were first, right? Why is a Franco different than a Sandstorm? Why are they almost, you know, 20 times the size? Well, they started way, way earlier and they had this first movers advantage to picking up projects before people really fully appreciated the value of royalties and streams in the mining sector. They kind of scooped them all up. So that's starting to happen right now in the carbon sector. There are lots of companies that are rushing to market. There are lots of companies that are raising capital aggressively, some of them very, very successfully. But the race to money is one thing. The race to projects is the other thing. So if you're thinking about investing in these things, Find the company that's able to consistently execute on finding and doing deals on great projects. And most going to market right now, this is shocking to say this, but from what I have seen, most going to market right now do not have any signed agreements on projects in their portfolio right now. I'm glad you brought that up. The rush to projects, that's the other side of the business. And it's easy to think that, oh, I'd be infinite. Like there's no shortage of 
of uh you know parts of the planet we need to protect so but there yeah of course there is it's finite like everything else right yeah and so you know what you're talking about is the low-hanging fruit being scooped up quickly right yeah i guess the cheap the cheap options right like maybe maybe purchasing rainforest in brazil seems expensive today but compared to how you're going to create a credit in 10 years when all the you know, the rainforest has been earmarked for development is taken up. Well, you got to build some sophisticated technology that's going to absorb yeah. carbon from the atmosphere somehow. How are you going to, how are you going to create that credit? That's really And as money floods into the space, Jay, like the margins will get squeezed out, right? You know, what are gold royalty companies looking for now on returns, like two or 3%? You know, it's like right. the, the, the buying a new royalty today is almost impossible because it's a very, it's a very mature, sophisticated market. There's a lot of money available for it. You know, the glory days, uh, you know, in the 90s, they're, they're over. In the gold sector. In the gold sector. In the yeah, gold in sector. the gold yeah. sector. And I would say, I, I know I would contend that that is just starting now in the carbon space. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Can I ask you, JB, have you seen anything really exciting and innovative in the carbon absorption industry? Has anything caught your eye? Like any, any, very creative technology or very effective technology? Yeah, so it's not something we've been focused on at this point. This is not really where our business model is. But one of the most interesting stories I've seen kind of playing in this space for the last couple of years is what's going on in your hometown in Squamish, British Columbia, uh, a group called Carbon Engineering, which are backed by, you know, some of the biggest, most famous investors in the world, you know, tech billionaires, et cetera. That are actually building plants designed to, you know, they're billion dollar plants designed to actually suck carbon out of the atmosphere. So those guys, you know, it's pretty cool to see a small town company, NBC, be really a world class leader and innovator in this space. So that's the one that comes to mind. I don't know if you've heard about them or interacted with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it comes up. I mean, Squamish, 20,000 people live in this town, man. So yeah, yeah. I hear about that a lot. Yeah, yeah. I love that you brought them up. Okay, now another parallel, and it's actually going to segue us out of the carbon business. You know, what struck me is, is, and I'm talking my book today, you know, once again, reminder to my audience, I don't give investment advice. I never tell people what to buy, but I'm happy to tell people why I did. In fact, I love to. So mm-hmm. we're going to talk about a company called Nova Royalty right now, because yeah. what you just described is similar. And what caught my eye with Nova Royalty, now, just for context, you know, Nova Royalty is a base metal streaming company, meaning they operate the streaming business model, but they purchase copper and nickel, right? From copper mm-hmm. and nickel mining companies. So they don't they don't take on the risk of looking for a new mineral deposit, having to build a mine. Uh, they're not exposed to volatile metal prices because they're just purchasing, yeah. right? Future future output. Um, what struck me about that is that I want to invest in the renewable energy trend, right? And if I look at the opportunities, right? It's really, it's early days still in this industry. And so when it's early days in anything, it's just hard to predict what's going to move. And so people rush into cobalt, for example, and then it turns out cobalt's yeah. really, really tough to get and can be engineered out. People rush into lithium, turns out lithium's super, super abundant, right? And maybe not the smartest bet. Now this stuff could change tomorrow, right? It's changed a couple of times. Whereas carbon is the conductor, like you're not going to ever engineer carbon out of electricity. Well, maybe, but- Copper, copper is the conductor. What did I say? Carbon. Got carbon <laughs> on the brain, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, you know what I meant. Thanks for catching yeah, that. Yeah. And so Nova Royalty appeared to me as the proxy to invest in renewable energy, right? And this yeah. is the company that 
I didn't get in early on at all, right? I actually just continued to dollar cost average in because I felt so confident in their business model. I've had the CEO on here a bunch and I just like him a lot. I trust him, to be honest. Yeah. Back to the Alex hill, is a right? great guy. He's, He's a great, great guy. guy. And, yeah. and I continue to buy Nova. Uh, last time I had Alex on, I told my audience, I'll buy more 24 hours after this video is published. And I did, and I'll continue to do so. So I think, are you a shareholder of Nova? If so, can you talk to my audience with a bit more detail about what they do and why you like it? I am not a shareholder of Nova, but I okay. wish I was actually. <laughs> uh, you know, I think they've done a phenomenal, phenomenal job. And Alex approached me about Nova early on and I, I listened to him and I liked it. And I thought it was a great idea. And, you know, like what happens sometimes I got distracted working on something else and I, and I never invested. And I've kicked myself hard about that ever since because him and his team have done really, truly a phenomenal job. And I mean, you know, the, the short answer is it's, as far as I know, one of the only the only copper royalty company out there, and they've done something that has been popular in the gold space for decades now, and they applied it to copper, which you know, in hindsight, was a very very obvious thing to do, uh, you know, and no one had done it successfully. And I mean, this is happening in the royalty space as a whole, right? There's also Uranium Royalty Corp, which has come out in the last couple of years. Uh, you know, with Amir Nani and his team having put that together, another huge market success. Um, and, you know, part of it is just comes down to royalties being such a great way to get exposure to a given commodity. It's such a great way for investors to get upside exposure while minimizing the risk. You know, I don't know if we're getting beyond sort of a little too financial for, for, for what people want to hear. But, you know, an average mining company trades at less than net asset value. So net asset value is basically the value of those assets in the company. So in the case of a mining company, it's, it's a mine. Now, often a mine, you know, will trade at 0.75 NAV or sometimes half of NAV. And that's because they're trying to calculate in risk there. They think there is such a good chance that something's going to go wrong or the costs are going to overrun or it's going to be delayed that they're building that into the financial estimate. So mining companies, you know, notoriously trade at less than that. That means the value, the, the asset is actually worth more than the company trades at, which is you know, a little bit crazy when you think about it from an investment perspective. Royalties, on the other hand, are the exact opposite because you can't have a cost overrun on a royalty, right? You buy the royalty, then you get paid whenever that mine is starting to, whenever that mine generates revenue, whenever that mine uh, produces gold. So your downside from that point is zero and your upside is you know, seemingly not infinite, but it can go anywhere from there. So royalties trade often, royalty companies, I should say, trade at two to three times NAV. So if a royalty is valued at a million dollars, throw it into a public company and it's gonna trade at two or three million dollars. It's a beautiful, phenomenal financial structure that has made a ton of people a lot of money and is just like completely overtaken the mining sector over the last 20 years. So gold uh, was where it kind of originally started, originally led by Franco Nevada. Now we're seeing uranium. Now we're seeing it in copper, probably the most, you know, well-known base metal royalty company is Altius uh, Minerals. They now have a sustainability company where they're doing royalties on sustainable energy, you know, solar panels, wind farms, et cetera. So this is a model that capital markets love, investors love, and we're starting to see it applied to a variety of things. And, you know, I always say, you know, for people that want to get exposure to the gold space, but 
they don't want to spend all day doing what you or I do, Jay, and doing private placements and doing research and talking to people, you know, buy a couple of the major royalty companies in that sector. And, you know, it's going to give you probably pretty good leverage to the commodity price, and it'll massively protect your downside. I mean, that's exactly what I did, right? That's why I purchased Nova, yeah. right? And, uh, and that's it. And, and why they came to mind, just to backtrack, is because you were talking about the race to projects with the carbon streaming business, right? And, mm-hmm. and that's what struck me about Nova, because now there are a handful of copycat um, copper and nickel royalty companies, yeah. but the best projects in the world are already locked up. And in my opinion, in Nova, and that's, uh, you, can't, you can't replicate that, right? Once, mm-hmm. once grid assets gone, it's part of a finite group. You, you can't replicate that. So, And there's another problem too, right? Like copper is trading near all time high. People, there is no illusion that copper or is like, everyone knows that copper is an extremely, extremely valuable commodity right now. You know, some of the biggest investors in the world are desperately looking to get their hands on it uh, in as big a supply as they can. And copper companies don't need to sell a royalty right now. You know, there are cheaper forms of equity or cheaper forms of capital for them, be it equity, be it potentially debt. So, you know, a royalty, selling a royalty from a company's perspective, it's not always the best choice. Often you're giving away a tremendous amount of value. So that tends to happen at the bottom of the market. You know, if copper was trading at $2 a pound versus closer to five, then I think, you know, there will be a lot of royalties for sale. But, you know, today, they're, they don't really exist to the degree they would have a few years ago right. when, when Nova started. Right. And, and what would be a trigger point for the price of copper to collapse? What would, what would cause that, Jamie? What would cause the price of copper to collapse? I mean, it's hard to imagine right now, right? Like, there's so, you know, if we you are- can speak, You can speak hypothetically. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what would cause it to collapse. It would need to take we would completely need to like readjust the direction of society, right? Talking about earlier, this whole narrative of moving towards net zero, ESG, you know, if we are going to electrify the world, I mean, copper is the number one element that's going to benefit from that, right? It's not just in electric cars and battery production, et cetera. It's the entire power grid is going to need to be upgraded. And copper is like really the only feasible metal for that. I think like the replacement cost of copper needs to get like be approaching like seven or eight to ten dollars, something like that. Mm. So we would have to basically say, you know, scrap it. We're not hitting net zero, you know, fire up the coal power plants and forget about it. I think that would be one of the main drivers that I could see killing the copper price. Uh is that possible? I mean it's nothing's impossible, but I would say it's unlikely. Yeah. Not something that that I'm gonna bet on. Okay. Yeah. All right, man. Look, I I also wanted to uh, to chat through my my junior mining portfolio with you and get your eyes on some of my positions, get your thoughts. We're gonna do that another time because we just should I like get some like cards to hold up and I write them one to ten, maybe <laughs> we can that. do that. Hundred <laughs> percent. That'd actually be pretty fun. I get. I would know what to sell. I'm going through that process right now, looking. I want to consolidate. I'm holding too many stocks in the junior mining sector and I want yeah. to consolidate. So maybe we'll I'll be on again like real soon. We can do that. It'd be kind of fun. Okay, dude. Look, thanks for coming on. It was super fun chatting with you, Jamie. And uh yeah, just like diving into this market more and trying to understand it personally. You know, you mentioned earlier uh, you know, the importance of choosing the right people. And, you know, I think that's really where shows like yours do such a tremendous value for investors and you guys are doing a great job. You know, I've learned a lot watching your show and uh, I, I know you're adding fun value there. So thank you very much for having me. Uh, dude, that's super kind to say. I appreciate it. I love doing it. Awesome. Great. 
If you enjoy my content, do me a favor, follow or subscribe to this podcast, drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.